to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. The anti-Trump opposition is confused, my friends. They're not even sure why they're supposed to be mad at Trump over Syria. There's a lot of different reasons they give, but they're not clear on which one is the real one. We'll get into that and much more today. Buck Sexton here with you all now. Uh, we'll talk about Secretary of State Tillerson visiting Russia to push them on a bunch of issues. I thought that this was going to be the puppet administration of the Kremlin. That's what the media has been telling us for months, everybody. Meanwhile, if you had to point to an action that upsets Russia from the last administration's eight years in charge versus this one, a lot easier to find some tough stuff vis-a-vis Russia under the Trump administration within the first 100 days than within eight years of Obama. We'll get into that. Also, a terrible attack on Coptic Christians on Palm Sunday. We'll do some deep dive into that sectarian violence and the dynamics uh, underneath it. Also, some more on the Stockholm sus- uh, the Stockholm terrorist uh, suspect was already under surveillance. We'll give you some updates on that. Uh, on, on the bright side of things, Neil Gorsuch is up on the Supreme Court now. It has happened. He is sworn in. We've got that crazy United Airlines video. We'll talk about that. And if we have time today, also get into transgender kids, which is now a thing that we can talk about, and uh, opinions, or rather a, a study about going to see the doctor to get a second opinion that will make you probably want to think about getting second opinions a lot more. All right. um, First, let's start with Syria. You have so many people uh, waxing philosophical on foreign policy after the strike on Thursday night. Uh, The missiles, uh, what was it, 59 Tomahawk missiles fired into Syria. And people know that they're supposed to be opposed to Trump, but they're not clear on what the accepted policy is. Uh, Reminds me of what you'd read from uh, former Soviet writers or former Soviet dissidents that a a jarring reality of life in a totalitarian society is that you have to wait until you're told what the official, what the official line is, because you can't just give your opinion, even if you think it's in line with the official line, because what if it's not? So you have to wait. We don't live in a totalitarian society, my friends, but progressives adhere to the same totalitarian principles of uh, groupthink and manda- mandatory analysis. There's no thought process involved. When, when asked for your thoughts on something, you're, you're told what to think and what to say. But on Trump, there was a little bit of a lag time. So at first it's, well, he didn't have legal authorization for this. Then you had other Democrats saying um, that it didn't do enough. And then you had other Democrats saying it could start war with Russia. And you had other, other Democrats saying this was warmongering. I mean, they weren't sure what the opposition was. They just know Trump did it. It must be bad. Uh, even though overwhelmingly, 
the consensus opinion among foreign policy elites seemed to be that this was a worthwhile and appropriate response to the usage of a chemical weapons attack. Uh, by the way, on, on that same communist propaganda line about how progressives need to know what they're supposed to say before they can say it, uh, they, they need the slogan, right? They need the Bush, they need Bush lied, babies died. They need something like that to repeat, not just to make themselves feel safe and warm and smart, but also to drown out opposition, right? Chant. This is why progressives love chants, similar to what you would see or what you uh, read in Orwell's Animal Farm with four legs good, two legs bad, or actually as the because it was the sheep, it was bad. Uh, but it was meant to be repeated and repeated, and then four legs good became four legs good, two legs bad in Animal Farm, which, of course, is a children's satire, written like a children's book, but it's a satire of communism and, a, and an excellent one. It's one of the most important works other than 1984 written by George Orwell. But four legs good, meaning animals, two legs bad, meaning humans, became four legs good, two legs better because the animals became just like the humans. It's all that's really communism 101 in a nutshell. It's all you have to know. But that's a slogan that is used for a purpose, and they're still trying to figure out what the slogan is on Trump. Is he doing too much on Syria, too little on Syria? Uh, is it just about right? Oh, no, that can't be the case because Trump is bad. We know that. That's what we've been told. So uh, going back to this strike, this missile strike, and I know some of you oppose it, and I think you oppose it for the same reasons that I have some trepidation here. I have some concerns as well. And it's not that the strike in and of itself worries me all that much, although, of course, there is always the po there is always the possibility when you fire a whole bunch of missiles into a foreign country, especially a foreign country that is uh, aided and allied with some major military powers, that there could be a miscalculation, a mistake, and things can get out of control pretty quickly. That said, if that's your approach on all matters of using force in international affairs and, and military strategy, well, then you're really never going to get very far, are you? You're always going to be afraid of doing anything. So unless it's all out war, you're not going to do anything. But there are legitimate concerns here. The concern that I have is that the strike, the missile strike will be followed up by uh, an effort or a groundswell to take out Assad. And, and that's not something that we want to get involved in right now. We have our hands full trying to destroy the Islamic State. And despite what we will hear from some of the uh, others out there, some of the senators out there, um, it's not easy to overthrow Assad and to bring that country into a state of relative order, right? It's never going to be Switzerland, but it doesn't also have to be the eighth circle of hell from Dante's Inferno. It doesn't have to be that. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's easy either. It's quite a fight ahead of us. And John McCain seems to think that we can do both. Another aspect of this that I do not agree with uh, the secretary is that you have to just concentrate on ISIS. We will take Mosul, we will take Raqqa, and we better have strategies as to how to handle those places once okay. we have won it. But they're not disconnected from Bashar Assad and the Al Qaeda and the war crimes that have been taking place. Uh, they are both connected, and I believe that the United States of America can address both at the same time. We can walk and chew gum. We have the capability uh, to do both. 
No, I mean, we have the capability, but we don't have the desire, and I don't think that we should, to try to do both right now. Uh, the only action that will prevent Assad from doing what he does is force. There is no happy way that this ends for him and his regime and his family and the Shia Alawite minority that supports him and for whom he is the protector. There's no easy way out here. No one's going to offer this guy who's been gassing his own people a fancy apartment off the Champs-Élysées in Paris, and he gets to just retire in peace and prosperity, and Syria has elections and it's free and fair and everything goes well. That's not that's not reality. That's not what's going to happen here. You're talking about overthrowing a dictator and possibly launching us into a situation where we are playing policemen in the midst of a civil war, which we do not want to do. Um, but I also want to move to how the Syrians feel about this, because as I said, this is just a first, uh, this is a first strike. It is a start and it could have an impact. It could have an influence on the decision making of Assad, of Russia. And now everything that we say is at least credibly backed by force when we say so. Right. If we say if you do more of this, there is a possibility that we will fire off some more missiles that will be even more damaging and that will uh, give the give the Assad regime a bloody nose. They can believe this now. Well, that's helpful for diplomacy. That's helpful for having a political discussion. This is why the credible use of force has to be at play when you're talking about diplomacy and international relations in the midst of a civil war. It's not just the use of force. And it can't be the complete absence of it, which is what we have with the Obama administration. Why would Assad not do whatever he wants? He's not going to be held accountable. He's not going to be in any trouble. Um, but then you get to the way the left portrays all of this. Um, and there was a, a stunning interview on CNN with someone who had, uh, a Syrian who had survived a chemical weapons attack and is now living in exile as a refugee from his own country. And he was interviewed by a CNN anchor. And I want to work through some of this piece with you because it there's so much going on here. Um, start at, uh, play clip 18. I woke up for some reason, I couldn't sleep. I woke up, uh, I saw a lot of texts on my phone. I saw the news. I cried out of joy. I jumped. I thank God. I, I don't know. I was overwhelmed. We've been asking for protection. We've been asking for consequences for more than six years. And today, for the first time, it happened. For the very first time, we see Assad held accountable just for once, held accountable for his crimes against humanity. I was overwhelmed. I felt grateful for President Trump. I felt grateful for the United States. I felt grateful for each and every person who lobbied and called and uh, kept on talking until someone actually listened. There are people in America. Okay, so stop, stop for a second. You just heard a Syrian who survived himself a chemical weapons attack, an earlier one in 2013, I believe. This individual who is speaking, um, he survived. And Qasem Eid, I believe is his name. He lives in Berlin. He's the one that's being interviewed there. And it's tough because the media like that ran all these stories. Look at how terrible look at how terrible the chemical weapons attack is. Look at how terrible it is. Look at the 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 brutal imagery of dying children. And Trump did something about it, unlike Obama. 
Trump did something. Obama did nothing about this numerous times over the many years that he could have taken action in Syria. Action that would not have endangered, at least in an imminent sense, U.S. lives. Obama did nothing. Trump did something. How does the media handle this? Well, as we know from the start of what I was saying here, they're under orders. Trump is bad. So we have to get to a way that Trump is bad, even though Assad is just horrible, bloodthirsty, brutal dictator. We're told that what he did is a crime against humanity, that it must be stopped. In fact, there were senior Obama administration figures, including Susan Rice and Samantha Power, at the very top of Obama's national security advisory chain, whose entire careers were built on R2P, responsibility to protect, i.e., intervening to stop genocide and mass murder and using U.S. military force to do so. The Obama administration certainly abandoned that precept in the case of Syria. And I'm not saying that invasion was the answer because the straw man or the false choice was something the Obama administration excelled at. Of course, do you want to deal with Iran or do you want to invade Iran? Do you want to do nothing in Syria or do you want to invade Syria? Maybe there was a middle way. Oh, in fact, there was a middle way. We just saw the beginning of it. I'm not saying that this changes everything, that the Trump airstrike somehow resets what's going on in Syria. No, far from it. But it's a start. Now the media, though, doesn't know what are their marching orders? What are the talking points? We said this was so bad. We showed all this footage, a chemical weapons attack, a monster murdering children. And no entity is in a better position to do something about it than the United States government with the finest military machine in the history of the planet at its disposal to do what is necessary here. And Trump takes an action, and now the media comes up with, well, he, he shouldn't have done it because of, uh, oh, oh, we'll get, in, we'll get into some of the argument here. We'll get into where they go next, but I need you to stay with me, and we'll hit it on the flip side. Be right back. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. So Trump takes action. Media has been showing us horrific imagery, footage of the aftermath of a chemical weapons attack, children dead, dozens killed. Trump takes action. Action that now, by the way, has been backed up, as I was suggesting before, it would, by Secretary of Defense General Mattis saying, if Syria uses chemical weapons again, they're going to be sorry, more or less. See, this is a warning shot of sorts. It's, it's quite a warning shot, I understand, between, you know, I don't know, close to $100 million estimated of ordnance fired off and an airfield that wasn't taken offline for all that long, but it is to give a warning to the regime. Warnings are important, by the way. You'll remember the warning given by the Bush administration in the lead up to the first Iraq war, telling them in no uncertain terms, if you do any, if you use chemical or uh, chemical weapons or anything else against us, you better be ready for the unmitigated fury of the United States military. Uh, so I wanted to get into this this uh, interview again for a moment. So so we've established Trump has said some things and or has done some things here, and the, the media is trying to figure out how Trump is wrong or how Trump is bad because that's the mandate, right, every day. White House in disarray. Trump is a racist. White House can't get anything done. Trump is a tyrant who does everything. It does Every day it switches, it goes around in circles, it doesn't matter. So here he takes an action in response to 
the kind of humanitarian uh, humanitarian situation, the kind of atrocity that should receive military response, and immediately it turns into, okay, well, maybe he did that, but, you know, the travel ban and stuff. Play, please. America, and I hear you supportive of President Trump, and so many people are, Democrats and Republicans, but there are also people over here in America who are saying, all right, so clearly President Trump is motivated by just, as we all ha have compassion for these just horrible images of, of the, you know, the, these babies who were, who were killed. Uh, but at the same time, this is a man who, you know, doesn't want Syrians to come into this country with this refugee ban. I want to just play some sound. Uh, Hillary Clinton weighed in. Hold on. Pause it for one second here. First of all, notice how we've already switched to Trump, the one who, the, the president who took action in response to chemical weapons used against Syrian civilians, including children. He's the bad guy here somehow. Obama did nothing for years and years. Usage of chemical weapons on a much bigger scale, by the way, than what we saw in this case. But Trump is obviously the bad. We have to find a way, don't you see? Have to get to a way that Trump is the bad guy. So we mention the Syrian uh, component of the 90-day restraining order on travel from some countries and the, uh, uh, the limiting of refugees. Of course, refugees are already limited. That's not new, um, but let's go. But but even even more than that, now we get to hear from Hillary Clinton. Oh, that's great! Let's hear from Hillary Clinton, who was Secretary of State and just dithered for years on Syria, did nothing, and then John Kerry dithered after her, nothing of consequence, nothing worthwhile. In fact, even worse, because as we know now, they were more or less aware. The State Department seemed like it was, if not aware factually, aware logically, that there's no way they're going to get all of Assad's chemical weapons. But we'll get back to that in a few moments. But they invoke Hillary Clinton. Oh, let's bring her into the conversation. Play it. We cannot in one breath speak of protecting Syrian babies and in the next close America's doors to them. Quickly, Qasem, how do you see that? Wait, pause it, pause it for one second, pause it for one second, because this is just too good, everybody. This this goes right to the heart of everything you see happening right now with Trump. We're going to let this, we're going to let Qasem finish up because his statement is powerful. Uh, but first, notice that, notice the sleight of hand here. Notice the media narrative construction at work here. Trump takes action in response to chemical weapons attack. Obama takes no action for years and years. In fact, really, in a sense, creates a cover story for the Assad regime by saying they've removed chemical weapons when they clearly haven't. But but because Trump doesn't want Syrian refugees absent proper vetting to come into the United States, keep in mind that there are plenty of other places, and we'll get into this too, that can take in and help Syrian refugees. But because Trump has security concerns about, about Syrian refugees, he now is the bad guy. He's the one who doesn't care about the suffering Syrian children. Oh, wow, what a what an amazing turnabout that is. He takes action in support of suffering Syrians. Syrian activists, by the way, many of them have come out and saying, yes, thankfully someone did something. But now he's now he's the bad guy. And we invoke Hillary Clinton, who says, oh, well, he's turning away babies. Let's not pretend. And by the way, let's not even get into Democrats and whether they're willing to protect babies. It's a whole other discussion. But we're going to have to finish with this Syrian, um, this uh, Syrian survivor on the other side of this break. And it is powerful. I promise you. Stay with me. So here we have it, everyone. Why, why does the media always 
turn everything Trump does into an opportunity to talk about how bad he is. Well, we all know because they hate him. (laughs) But he does something that they should be uh, a majority of the elite opinion media, which is really all media, should be behind him on this, given all of the uh, all of the teary eyed entreaties they have made on camera in the past about do something about Syria, do something about Syria. Trump does something. and Oh, well, he does something there, but he didn't do Uh, They invoke Hillary Clinton, as anyone cares what she thinks about anything anymore, in order to make the case that, well, you can't help Syria unless you take in Syrian refugees. First of all, that's nonsense. The best thing that could be done is to allow Syrians to live in their own country. They want to live there. I told you, I've spoken to refugees myself in the camps that fled the war. Every single one that I spoke to said they wanted to go home to Syria. They didn't say they wanted to go to a new country, believe it or not. But here you have somebody who had to flee, who was in a chemical weapons attack, Qasem Eid, is this uh, individual in this interview. And his response to the, well, Hillary Clinton says that Trump doesn't do enough to help the Syrians because of his refugee ban. Uh, he was not, they were not expecting this response. Play it. Uh, with all due respect, with all due respect, I didn't see each and every person who was demonstrating uh, after the travel ban. I didn't see you three days ago when people were gassed to death, when civilians were gassed to death. I didn't see you in 2013 when 1,400 people were gassed to death. I didn't see you raising your voice against President Obama's uh, uh, inaction in Syria that led us refugees that made us refugees get kicked out of Syria. If you really care about refugees, if you really care about helping us, please help us stay in our in our country. We don't want to come to the United States. We want to okay. stay in our country. We want to stay in our country with all the respect. This is hypocrisy. If you really care, if you really care, help us stay in our country. We don't want to become refugees. We want to stay in our country. Help us establish safe zones. Help understand. us uh, stay. <laughs> Gotta stop safe this guy from talking. And if you okay, just wait. Pause me- it. Pause it. Because oh no, oh no, he's he's totally gone off script. He's gone off the rails. He has he has pointed out the immense hypocrisy of the left, not just on Syria and refugees, and but just about war in general. And by the left, I mean the Democratic Party and all of its allies. Oh, the anti-war movement that went away during the Obama years, despite our continued presence and fighting in two major wars, as well as other conflict zones around the world in the war on terror. Went away. Oh, there was no, there was no. But even more importantly, and this is a, a brilliant and essential point that this man makes here, much, much to the to the chagrin and I'm sure to the uh, the shock and perhaps even horror of some of the Democrats in the CNN audience. They are more upset, you see, about some people that were detained at the airport temporarily or will have to wait a little while longer for their visa or maybe even for their refugee status than they are about the gassing of Syrian civilians. Why would that be the case? Is it because opposition to Trump is the number one goal? Is it because that's the single most important thing to Democrats? They pretend to care about Syrian civilians, but it's really just used as a sledgehammer against Trump. And so when all of a sudden it's hard to come up with a narrative that squares with all the other things they say, hmm, they get a little confused. So they have to switch it. to Let's forget about the missile strikes. Let's talk about the travel ban, shall we? No, I think we should talk about the missile strikes. I think that's more important. 
I also want to tell you something that this just struck me, uh, and we'll get back into the hypocrisy of, of the left on all this in a moment. But to bring out Hillary Clinton, who was Secretary of State for at least part of, and really in many ways the most critical part of the Syrian civil war when it comes to U.S. strategy and policy because we sat on our hands and did nothing. And after the fact, of course, we were told that it was Hillary who wanted to take action. Hillary was the one who wanted to go forward and and Obama overruled her. Oh, isn't that convenient for her aspirations, considering her political aspirations, considering that we all knew she was going to run for office later on for the Democrats. So Obama's administration could take the heat and Hillary could be the one who who knew better all along. That was the story we were given. But there's Hillary talking about refugees. There's Hillary offering up that Trump doesn't care about refugees. You recall that she was part of, Hillary Clinton was part of a foundation that raised almost that has raised almost two billion dollars. Billion with a B, my friends, for ostensibly charitable purposes and tens of millions of dollars of private jet travel, lots of big salaries and consulting agreements with friends of the Clintons. But sure, charity too, I guess, sort of, sometimes. $2 billion. And I was curious. I thought to myself, well, Hillary, here she is lecturing the the current administration on how it doesn't care about Syrian refugees enough. Um, I, I, I would wonder, what did the Clinton Foundation do? In order to help these Syrian refugees. So I just did a little poking around. Then I can't say that this research is conclusive or that there's nothing else to put in here. But keep in mind, $2 billion. I found something on the uh, Clinton Global Initiative under the Clinton Foundation website that said that in 2014, Global Impact, which is part of the CGI, the Clinton Global Initiative, committed to build and manage the Syrian Refugee and Resiliency Fund. That's right. That's what they're calling this. The Syrian Refugee and Resiliency Fund. To provide CGI members, this is from the Clinton Foundation website, with access to a neutral platform to raise funds for commitments to action related to the Syrian refugee crisis, uh, Global Impact aims to raise, drumroll, remember, $2 billion, Syrian refugee crisis, among the worst humanitarian crises, you could argue the worst in the world at the time. This is back in 2014. Hillary Clinton, of course, is going to be running for president at the time, is at the height of her powers, her fundraising prowess, to be sure. And what uh, what is offered up here, or is what, what is offered up here for the Syrian refugees from the Clinton Foundation? A million dollars. They aimed to raise a million dollars through this fund. A, a, a million bucks, everybody? I, I can tell you that uh, the, the uh, Qataris and the Saudis and the Emiratis given a lot more than a million dollars for the refugee crisis. Say what you will about how they don't bring in refugees to their countries. At least they're writing real checks. Clinton Global Initiative, a million dollars. Out of the $2 billion raised, they thought the Syrian refugee crisis was so critical that it required a cool million, maybe, if they could raise that. That's what I see on their website. Maybe there's more, but I didn't find any. I looked around. You'd figure if they were doing something worthwhile for Syrian refugees, wouldn't they want to tell everybody about it? I mean, these are the Clintons, after all. A lousy million bucks out of two, remember, out of two billion raised. million dollars. And that was just their target goal. I don't even know what they ended up getting. Oh, and by the way, the CGI, the Clinton Global Initiative, that was the global 
uh, I don't even know what you'd call it. It was just a, a, another version of the Clinton Foundation, but it was specifically more international focused. They shut it down. Why? After Clinton wasn't going to be president anymore, all of a sudden donations started to dry up. So she was so concerned with the Syrian refugee problem that in her massive uh, influence peddling operation, masquerading as a charity, they decided to try to raise a million dollars for refugees. That's how much they cared about this. And it should also be noted that to help refugees, you actually have to spend money on them, uh, which is not. And there's a whole list. I, I went to the list that you find online. I think it's charityfinder.org or something like that to see what are the what are the charities that are doing a lot for you know, there's a Catholic, a Catholic Relief Fund. I mean, there's all these different major charities that you would think of that were doing things for Syrian refugees. And Clinton Global, uh, Clinton Global Initiative, Clinton Foundation, not even in the top 10, of course. And I looked at their website to see well, what are the main, oh yeah, that's right, climate change, economic development, very vague areas where you can raise money from anyone around the world for any purpose, really, and say, yeah, sure, it's for economic development. Refugees need tents and clean water and sandwiches and medicine. You know, refugees are a metric and and you can see how much help you're giving to them and you can gauge it. Clintons don't want to, "Ah, I don't want to do that. Helping refugees, that'd be expensive. Let's raise more money for climate change and just have a bunch of conferences with international world leaders about climate change. Anyway, the hypocrisy that Clinton shows on all issues is mind blowing, but that this refugee pointed out what so many others would, I'm sure, love to pretend is not a reality here uh, is that the left is first and foremost concerned with Trump and how evil he is. And if you were to walk around and ask many leftists, including those who think of themselves as well-educated, bright, with their finger on the pulse of what's going on in the world, what matters, who is the bigger concern? Uh, for the bigger threat to Syria, if you pose that question, is it Assad or Trump? Is it ISIS or Trump? As a liberal in good standing, I think there's a very real chance that uh, you'd hear them say Trump. And that's what influences the thinking here. Everything has to be secondary to the destruction of this administration. So when there's a moment that the Democrats, and by the way, I understand the principle of the Republican opposition to us meddling and everything, but that's not what the Democrats are up to here. They're just looking to oppose to oppose. And that's why there's this cacophony of, well, you know, Trump is bad, man. And so it's, there must be, it must be bad. They're grasping for the reason because they haven't been given the official reason and they don't have the slogan yet. They don't have the Bush lied, babies died. So you hear different reasons for it, but ultimately this, this, This Syrian who has suffered and understands what's really going on in the country praises Trump, upends the whole Democrat narrative here and points out what a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites the left are on this whole issue of Syria. Oh, they pretend to care so much, but they really don't care at all. Not if it means that they would have to praise their very uh, hated Donald Trump. That is priority number one. Everything with Syria is number two. And this breaks down into a big cycle of virtue signaling for the left. That's what this was. Oh, we care so much about Syria. Well, someone took action on Syria. Do you support it? Some supported it, but others were looking for reasons to say, well, this is bad just because Trump did it. Uh, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Our phone lines are open. We'll take some calls. 
We've got to talk about the uh, attack on those Coptic churches in Egypt, also the United, uh, the melee on that United flight where an individual, we'll, we'll get into those details, a lot more show coming your way. Light up those lines, Team Buck, and I'll be back with you in a few minutes. All right, we've got Bob in Colorado on the iHeart app. What's up, Bob? Hey, man, just a quick question. You know, I mean, we know since 2013 with the OPCW and the UN going in and working to have Syria disarmed there, um, that their SS-21 and Scud variant um, chemical warheads were removed. Those were the only two known chemical munitions, to my understanding, that Syria had. Both of those are so large that there is no physical way to have those attached and deployed from an Su-22 aircraft. Now, Syria does have ZAB incendiary rounds, and, which are bombs, and PTAB 500s, which are like cluster bombs. Both of those, like with a development program, could potentially uh, be converted to carry chemical weapons, but that would have had to have been done post-2014 when the UN and OPCW have left. Uh, how? Couldn't have been done. Couldn't have been done. And and let me just state, uh, you know, so everyone knows, I'm not a. This is one thing is, you know, somebody who's worked in intelligence. I'm not a. uh, I'm not a a a planes guy, and I'm not a chemical weapons guy. I mean, you know what I mean? There are people. This that's all they did. I was a a jihadist counterinsurgency guy. So that's it's not really in my in my wheelhouse. Although I have some familiarity with uh, the general issues of military ordinance and everything else. Um, so, I mean, if you're asking me if it's possible, I, w- I would r- respond, uh, wouldn't it be theoretically possible for them to have had a delivery mechanism that they didn't, that wasn't known to the UN and wasn't known to the deal beforehand, right? It wouldn't have to have happened after 2014. And why wouldn't it be able to happen after 2014? It's Inspections are, to say they're imperfect is an understatement. I mean, there's... Absolutely. Yeah, so I I, I think uh, what well, was supposed to be the the Su twenty two is the airframe they think uh, was responsible right, for that, the attack, right? Being, absolutely, that's what that's what we're being told. Yeah. I mean, you know, these previous government attacks with with these chemical weapons have all been you know attributed to artillery barrages. Um, completely plausible because we know for a fact that these types of munitions were were within you know Syrian the Syrian regime's hands. Um, but to my knowledge, and, and you know, I'm, hey, I'm not the end-all, be-all, but they had no air-deployable chemical weapons. And well, they would have to do it in, in bomb form. And, and again, I, I'm not a chemical weapons guy, so I, I know, yeah. you know, I, I know more than you'd know from watching the movie The Rock. Like, that's like that's a preposterous, <laughs> you know, that, that, that movie's yeah. ridiculous in terms of the way that yeah. it shows, you know, chemical weapons uh, and the handling of them and everything else. Um, but I, I don't know about uh, delivery mechanisms from a plane specifically for chemical weapons. I, I could look into it. My yeah. sense of it would be that the Syrians, um, the Syrians are... Able, they were probably able to hide a lot, and that deal that was supposed to get chemical weapons out of Syria is not um, that 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 deal would not have been all that me- meaningful in terms of knowing what they have. Right? This is right. what they would have disclosed. Well, well, they probably just didn't disclose some of it. Does that make sense? And that's yeah. how I would see it. Oh, I, yeah, I, of course, absolutely, absolutely. Um, has there been any? Um, word back at this point from a place like Porton Down or anywhere who does these these uh, tests of the chemical compositions of the you know biological and environmental samples that are brought back from these types of places not that I, I haven't heard I haven't heard of it but okay. again I I would need to look at it some more I, I'm assuming that there must be some 
And I admit that it's an assumption, and assumptions are uh, you open yourself up to a lot of stuff when you assume. Um, yeah. But I, I'm assuming that the, with the level of certainty that all the different elements of the U.S. government, our allies, and uh, others in the region have said that chemical weapons were used here um, and deployed, um, forget about them being used, but and deployed in this fashion that these planes were were tied to it. Uh, yeah. I, I would think that they probably had them red-handed, right? I mean, I, I don't I, like I, to... I, 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 I hope so. I, I, would, I mean, I would think so. I would hope so, too, based on what we've been told. But I'm look, I'm, I'm out of the game now, right? And, and the good part of that, yeah, that yeah. is that means I can talk to you all about it. The bad part is I don't know everything anymore, so... Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, man. So, all right, well, man. Shield... I, I love the show, man. Thanks, I Bob. Shields high. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I, I would uh, be curious. Maybe we can get somebody who's a real... Um, this is what this is what you learn from the, you know, when you develop an expertise on the national security side of any kind, you learn to respect immediately that there are other people with expertises that you don't have and that they really know the stuff and that you always need to make sure you you um, are outside of your lane. You're just somebody that reads and, and tries to learn. You're not somebody that is a, is a practitioner or a professional on it. And when it comes to airframes, uh, I'm I'm conversant in them, but I'm not. I, I couldn't tell you the difference, or, or I, I couldn't get into that much of the uh, uh, aerodynamic uh, advantage of, you know, Sukhoi swept-wing airframe versus what you'd see with the more famous MiG variant of the Russian planes versus uh, F-15 and F-16 and all the stuff the U.S. has and fourth-generation fighters and all that. I don't know. I It gets a little bit beyond me. Uh, so phone's still open, 844-900-2825. I want to talk to you about uh, the Coptic, the, the bombing of the Coptic churches in Egypt, which happened uh, yesterday on Palm Sunday on a uh, uh, high holy day for uh, Christians. Um, I will get into that, and then we'll also discuss, uh, I believe we have Heather McDonald joining us later on in the show to talk about the campus totalitarians and their reception, the reception they gave her recently, which was completely outrageous. And uh, we'll talk a little more national security with a national security expert and get into that United flight. And I will share with you my thoughts on what it is like to fly a major U.S. carrier these days. He spreads freedom because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Welcome back, team. There were uh, two horrific bombings yesterday in Egypt. Uh, the the death toll is at least 44 people killed. Uh, this is on Palm Sunday, and it is clearly an act of anti-Christian terrorism. Uh, Islamic State militants have, uh, Islamic State terrorists have claimed responsibility for the attack. No surprise with regard to the responsible party. Uh, there's some audio. We could we could hear the audio of the attack. Uh, I'll play it for you now. It's disturbing, but I think you should hear it, and we should talk about what's going on here. Play it. People were praying, and a suicide bomber got past security uh, and blew up dozens of people who were uh, who were at prayer uh, in Egypt and there were two of these attacks one of the suicide bombers blew himself up at St Mark's Cathedral which is the seat of the Coptic church in Alexandria 
the uh, the Copt, uh, Coptic Church has its own pope, Pope uh, Tawadros II. Uh, he was leading a service. So this was, from what we see, a not just a suicide bombing aimed at innocents, but also perhaps a an attempt on the life of the pope, the leader of the Coptic Church. Um, and and there was a uh, another incident where someone. Uh, the terrorist got past the pews in a, or got past security rather to the front pews of a church and blew himself up. Now, some background here is, I, I think, worthwhile. Uh, the Coptic Christians in Egypt, Coptic just means it just means Egyptian. Um, the Coptic Christians are among the oldest Christian uh, sects in the world. The Coptic Church is around for. Oh, close to two thousand, about two thousand years. It was uh, founded by the apostle Mark, who also wrote the first, uh, the first of the four Gospels of the New Testament. He traveled to Egypt, um, and the Coptic Church's initial uh, first um, major city, the founding city, was Alexandria. This is interesting to people, I think, because so. Uh, little of the history of the Islamic conquest is taught in a way that you would expect it to be based on the facts. How many people in this country would even ever stop to think that Egypt, which is now a almost entirely, other than this Coptic Christian population of about 7 to 10 million, they're not totally sure as to the number, uh, but Egypt has close to 90 million inhabitants, and it is... Uh, other than the Coptic population, Muslim, that Egypt and North Africa and what would have been considered in antiquity Asia Minor, which is Turkey and the the uh, surrounding areas, um, those were all Christian. Those were all part of, in the case of Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, uh, the Byzantine Empire, they were Christian for a very long time, for many centuries before the Islamic conquest. Um, and so it is fascinating, I think, as just a historical uh, context, that you have jihadists who always argue that any land that was ever that was ever Muslim should return to the hands of the Ummah of the Islamic community, when all of the land, other outside of Saudi Arabia, really, and even you could the South, there was a war of conquest fought in Saudi Arabia too against other tribes. But all of the land that we now think of as the Muslim Middle East uh, was, if not Christian, certainly non-Muslim for a long time. Uh, and the Coptic Christians in Egypt are under a perpetual threat. It, it should be noted that there has to be security at all, like the armed security in these churches during a, a high, uh, during a, a holy day, a, a service. I mean, Sunday is always a day of obligation for Christians, but Palm Sunday in particular um, would bring a crowd because of its significance, right? The Sunday before Jesus enters, I'm sorry, the, the Sunday um, before Easter and the Sunday that Jesus enters Jerusalem. So uh, this is an incident that raises a lot of very troubling questions, um, and also the media's coverage of it. Uh, by the way, this is not, there have been uh, other horrific attacks on Coptic Christians in the past, and if you were to look at news reports of what life is like now for Christians in Nigeria, they also have to have security in place because of um, the very real threat of Muslim suicide bombers, because there have been Muslim suicide bombers who have gotten past security and killed large numbers of people in Nigeria as well. 
this does seem to be a a one-way street. Um, you do not have persecution of Muslims by Christian groups of any kind on this scale and with this level of violence and uh, and hatred anywhere in the world. Uh, this is a problem that when we talk about it, it is often soft-pedaled by the media in one way or another. Uh, even the New York Times headline here, Egypt declares state of emergency as attacks undercut promise of security. Yeah, they declared a state of emergency because a Muslim jihadist group uh, murdered a whole bunch of Christians at prayer in, in a couple of churches. Um, and I think we can, just as a, as a means of putting this into the proper context, think about what the response would be if you had a, a church, uh, I'm sorry, if you had a, a mosque uh, during one of the Islamic holidays, two mosques, uh, it should be noted, in a predominantly Christian country that were uh, blown up by Christian fundamentalists. Of course, this, this doesn't happen, uh, certainly with the same frequency, even the same universe of frequency as it happens the other way around. And we are told not to ask too many questions about this because to do so is to play into the hands of the terrorists. I don't accept that. I don't believe that we can pretend that this is not the threat that it is and that if we hope that it goes away, it will eventually just fade into some... I I don't know what they even believe the future holds here. I I don't know what it will fade into if you take the left's perspective on this, which is that this is just an isolated incident. Well, when there's a lot of isolated incidents, they seek to be isolated. And when you need to have major security at churches in Egypt and you have to declare a state of emergency uh, because of the persecution of a Christian minority that, remember, Egypt was a, at one point a Christian country, and then the Islamic conquest came along, and uh, Coptic Christians have been spread all over the world. They're predominantly in, uh, in Egypt, but there are actually many of them uh, that have, have left the country. And this is the story now, unfortunately, of the Middle East in recent decades, which is that Christian communities have been uh, under siege, have been exterminated, have been destroyed, uh, and the West, for fear of seeming like it was playing favorites, and it really is that simple and simplistic in its thinking, doesn't come down very hard on this issue, uh, isn't willing to express really the due outrage here and the inability of these countries, and in some cases unwillingness of these countries, to protect the Christian minorities in their midst. It's certainly true in Iraq and it's true in Syria. And it should be noted that while we are now in an anti-dictator phase of our foreign policy in the Middle East, was not always the case. In fact, we found dictators quite useful and helpful for, for a while. Um, we, were, we, were, we were, on a policy level, rather fond of the Shah in Iran, um, not to mention Mubarak in Egypt and others who were willing. Look, uh, someone asked me last week, why is Jordan a relatively quiet country? Uh, well, it's got a very close relationship with the United States, a good relationship with Israel, and it has a pretty b- benevolent despot in charge who is pro-Western and is not running around acting like a maniac all the time. So sometimes we do think that on a policy level, the outcome is better for us and even for the people in some of these Muslim countries than outright and immediate democracy that leads to Islamization, because then you get to the one vote, one man, one time situation, and the democracy quickly collapses under the weight of Sharia. 
This is this is what we face. And the Christian minorities in these countries are under siege, have been for a long time. And really, the entire story of Christianity in the Middle East is one long siege uh, because the numbers have been going nowhere but down and they have been losing control and been pushed out. Uh, and in recent years, it's gotten even worse. It should be noted that some of the dictators that we've been uh, now opposed to in our policies and also in our media, whether we're talking about Saddam or uh, even, yes, Assad, were protecting their Christian communities from jihadist fundamentalists. And that protection, certainly in the case of Iraq, and I would believe in the case of Syria, would be gone. Uh, and for reasons of domestic uh, politics, you would have new administrations, new regimes coming into power that wouldn't want to seem too cozy with the Christians because of the anti-Christian sentiment that is widespread in these countries. Widespread. I, we're not supposed to know about it or talk about it, but it is true. And I can tell you, especially in uh, Iraq, uh, the fundamentalists love to attack the Christian community, the Iraqi Christian community, which predates Islam, by the way by centuries, as is the case also in Egypt. There were Christians in Egypt for hundreds of years before there was even such a thing as Islam, before there was even the Prophet Muhammad. Does anyone even know this? Has anyone taught this? Has anyone taught that the uh, Islamic conquest came at the expense of the Eastern Christian Orthodox world, uh, which was the inheritor of the Roman world, the ancient Roman world, and consider themselves uh, with the Byzantine emperor believing that he was, he had inherited Rome, that they were Romans. And in the early days of the fights between the uh, some of the nomadic steppe peoples, uh, the Seljuk Turks and others, um, against the Byzantine Empire, uh, they believed that the Byzantines were Romans. That was what they were called. And there's even a province uh, in Anatolia named for this, Rome, R-U-M. So... When we look at this problem, it's not going to get uh, better anytime soon, and it is a shame. And I don't even know what the answer is other than just to at least, I feel like we owe it to the people of these communities, uh, these Christian communities that have been so thoroughly persecuted, to speak the truth on their behalf. And it's a shame that in this country there is a rejection of the notion that we should be more, we should with more haste take in Christian refugees from some of these countries than we should non-Christian refugees, Muslim refugees, because that's just a rejection of reality. The reality is that Christians in these countries are in, under much greater threat and uh, also, of course, are not going to be jihadists, so we don't have to worry about them fighting in the name of ISIS. Uh, but these are politically incorrect positions to hold now, based on reality, but liberalism is largely a rejection of reality these days. Uh, terrible atrocities in Egypt, uh, very similar to what we see in Nigeria and other countries around the world where there's a large Muslim population living side by side with a large Christian population. And our leadership doesn't want to speak about it very much. Certainly the last administration doesn't want to speak about it. And in the case of Egypt, it is uh, a situation that could get much worse uh, very quickly. Um, and this is why when we see what happened with the Muslim Brotherhood and the rise of uh, Muslim Brotherhood fanatics in Egypt, we say, you know what, we'll take the guy, we'll take the, we'll take the strong man who at least will protect 
minority religious communities and play ball with the West over majoritarianism of Islamism. That's that's just we're allowed to make our own decisions too, everybody. And that's what that's what the decision has been. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. We're gonna hit a quick break. Take a call. We'll be right back. I see the banner on Fox News right now. New questions over strength of Iran nuclear deal. I think yours truly was one of the first to raise it uh, last week publicly. That uh, keep in mind, everybody who told you the chemical weapons were out of Syria from the previous administration, those are the same people that told you the Iran nuclear deal was good to go and everything would be fine. Uh, and some of them are the same people lied to you about Benghazi. So why we would trust them on the Iran deal is, oh, I, I challenge anyone to try to make that case. David in Mississippi on w, uh, WJDX. Good to have you. David? Oh, sorry, man. Can you hear me? Yeah, now we can. You got to speak up. What's up? Hey, thanks uh, Thanks for taking my call. I love your show. Thank you very much. So, my uh, my question or my statement is, is uh, look, we've got, we've got two monsters in the Middle East. We've got ISIS who will uh, pour gas and burn people alive, and we got Assad who will drop gas on people and, and uh, gas them to death. So my my thinking is is let's let's clear the flank of ISIS and tell them say look if you all go to Syria we won't chase you down and kill you and let's just let the two monsters um, kill each other and uh, no matter who wins or loses that fight whoever wins will be significantly diminished and whoever loses we won't have to worry about it no more. Well, I think that that's been the policy. Uh, unspoken, but that's been the policy for for years now. Uh, the, the problem with allowing Assad to be the leader in the fight against ISIS uh, is that, for one, the Islamic State isn't just fighting Assad. The Islamic State believes that it is in the middle, it is enmeshed in a global conflict, and it is the caliphate that is trying to spread not just Islamic radical ideology, but also violence in the service of that ideology all over the world and does so via the internet as well as training operatives to go and engage in attacks. So there have been consequences from the Islamic State side of it, to be sure, to to us and our allies from the inaction. Now, that's not to say that the alternatives are necessarily all that much better when you look at uh, toppling uh, Assad and and even toppling the Islamic State, it should be noted, uh, or or getting rid of it uh, in whatever capacity we can, there will be a security vacuum in and around Raqqa, and you might have uh, the Kurdish factions squaring off against Sunni Arab Syrian factions. This is incredibly complicated. It varies village by village, town by town, and uh, leaving them to fight each other. I can understand why that's. An appealing, uh, an appealing position from a foreign policy perspective, but I think there are um, ways to get involved here without taking on the entire problem set. Does that does that make sense, David? Meaning that there are ways we can try to contain it more than we have contained it and bring it to an end faster than it would otherwise, without all of without putting our guys in the middle of uh, warring factions in Aleppo and saying, "Oh well, figure this out." Um, but the, the the Trump administration is at the very start of its Syria policy, and it doesn't. the Trump administration doesn't have a doctrine. I mean, I guess they'd say America first is their doctrine, but that's, that's, more, of a, that's more of a first principle than it is a, a foreign policy doctrine, um, so, or a first principle on foreign policy. 
but yeah, we've been letting them fight it out. And I know some people still want them. David, thank you for calling in. Appreciate it from Mississippi. Uh, some people want them to just keep fighting it out. Marco Rubio is not one of those, however. He believes that we should remove Assad. I hope they'll reconsider this idea that we're going to get rid of ISIS and then we'll hopefully use Assad and others to come up with a solution. It's not going to work. As long as Assad is there, you're going to have a radical jihadist Sunni element. Even if you destroy ISIS, it'll be al-Nusra and that new coalition. These people who have been killed and gassed and, and uh, human rights violations against them will never accept Assad as a rightful ruler and they will join or become radicalized in order to fight him. Now, there's some truth to what Rubio says here, but there's also problems with it. Because Nusra, as he refers to, Jabhat al-Nusra, which is the al-Qaeda branch in Syria. We really should just call it al-Qaeda in Syria. I don't know why. We can call these groups whatever we want. We don't have to use their name. Um, but Jabhat, Jabhat al-Nusra is never going to accept. There's, there's no election that you can hold post-Assad that Jabhat al-Nusra is like, yeah, we'll respect individual rights and no if, if they are around and they would be after Assad falls they're going to be attacking whatever government takes his place doesn't matter how pluralistic democratic rule of law and respectful it is doesn't matter so this notion that we well we can't just get rid of the Islamic State and not get rid of Assad because there will always be jihadists as long as Assad is in power is incomplete there will always be jihadists in Syria period, for the foreseeable future, for a long time to come. And getting rid of Assad is going to mean that whoever does that takes on that problem set, meaning that, you know, it's just like with Iraq and Afghanistan. You break Syria, you own Syria. Do any of you listening want to own Syria right now? Meaning as a foreign policy problem, not actually owning it. Uh, would any of you want your loved ones to be walking the streets of Aleppo or Damascus right now trying to keep war and fa warring factions apart? I, I wouldn't, and I wouldn't give the order, and I wouldn't sign up to do it right now. So that's what influences my thinking. Some of the audio from uh, protesters at two speeches given by our next guest, uh, Heather McDonald. She's a Manhattan Institute senior fellow and author of The War on Cops. Heather, quite an ordeal they put you through out there. Well, it's quite amazing how little uh, free speech there is on campuses today. The students believe they have the absolute right to shut down speech they find racist, and uh, it turns out not many people are stopping them from doing so. Can we can we just ask you to w walk us through? So you're invited to you're invited to Claremont McKenna uh, in Cal and UCLA, both California schools here. Um, the Claremont McKenna incident was was more uh, egregious. Could you walk us through from you arrive to what you're being told to what you're hearing? T take us through this process. Well, I was I received an urgent email the day before from uh, one of the people that had set up my talk saying they had wind of a protest and they were considering moving the venue from the auditorium that had so many windows in it. Uh, 
uh, and one to more more egresses. Well, this was rather ominous. Uh, when I arrived, I was taken to what was a guest suite, but it basically felt like a safe house. Um, and I, I didn't have a view of the auditorium where I was speaking in order to see the gr- growing crowds, which ultimately numbered almost 300, but I could certainly hear them chanting and drumming uh, and and getting louder and louder. So I then was left there for a little bit to relax, and then they came to pick me up with a police escort through a sort of virtually hidden elevator to try and get me into the building. The original plan had been that I would meet with students, discuss with them my views, their views, have dinner with them, and then give a speech. The authorities at Claremont McKenna uh, decided that they could not well the the protesters had barricaded the entrance to the speaking hall, so none of the speakers, none of the students with whom I was supposed to be meeting could even get in uh, so Claremont, in an effort to protect my ability to give a speech, decided I would just give it to an empty hall and and have it live streamed during my talk. Students were pressed on the glass outside. You don't know whether they're going to break through, chanting and pounding on the walls, so on the glass. So, you you know, again, the question is, are they going to break through and what's going to happen then? I finished my speech, took two questions via live streaming, and then the officers, the police officers in the room decided that the crowds outside were getting too unruly and they could no longer guarantee, I suppose, my safety. So it was my question and answer period was precipitously cut off, and I was hustled into a police van, having planned a careful escape route and driven immediately to the uh, Claremont Police Station. What were their objections? What did they think you were going to say versus obviously what were you going to say? What were the slogans they were chanting? Uh, They are, I assume, offended by your research which I'm sure they haven't read and know nothing about, but they are offended at least by the the general position of your research on Black Lives Matter, right? That's the problem for them. Right. I My position is, is that the Black Lives Matter narrative is a complete fraud. Everything that the pu- public thinks it knows about policing from Black Lives Matter activists is, is wrong. Reverse it and you've got the truth. There is no epidemic of racially biased police shootings of black males, and there are thousands of law-abiding inner-city residents in high-crime areas, minorities themselves, who fervently support the police and beg for more police protection, not less. And they say, meanwhile, these uh, these anti, anti-Heather McDonald protesters, I guess what we'd have to call them, uh, they wanted to shut down anti-black fascist Heather McDonald. What else were they saying here? Um, they referred to you as a white as a white supremacist, right? Yeah. I mean, this is the stuff that they say. Yeah, it's just it's absolutely amazing. And the the biggest irony in all of these protests, they go under the name of anti-fascist. This is about a garden variety version of fascism to use brute force, not only to shut me down, but to prevent their fellow students from hearing me and making up their own minds. Um, you know, I'm I I accept that political discourse is often hyperbolic and and they presumably sincerely believe that I am a fascist and and a white nationalist which is preposterous um, 
but I would hope that some of the faculty realize that that is a ludicrous assessment and would step up and put themselves between non-Orthodox speakers like myself and the mob. Were they just, was there any sense of embarrassment? That did, any, did you get to talk to any professors or administrators who felt sorry about this, or was this just what they expected and this has now become the new normal for them? No, I think they were. I think they were genuinely mortified. They had tried to, uh, as I say, secure my ability to speak, but they clearly did not take enough measures. And the police, the campus police, as usual, were utterly passive. Uh, they had set up barricades to prevent people from blocking the door, but when students ignored those barricades. The police just let them walk right on by. That was both the campus police and the city police. And what we're seeing in that is something equally worrisome, which is the state of policing today in the Black Lives Matter uh, era, where police are so terrified about doing anything that will be deemed racist or oppressive, however lawful, because they would have been enforcing the university rules against preventing people from entering buildings, they they just stand by passively. Uh, and we saw that in the Berkeley riots uh, against Milo Yiannopoulos, where the cops let people destroy property, sucker punch perceived Milo and Trump supporters, uh, because they were so worried about becoming the story themselves with a false storyline about racial oppression. And also at Middlebury, which is a near competitor of the college I went to, Amherst, and I'm very curious to know, if you go up to Amherst, by the way, Heather, please let us know, and we want to hear if you received a similar reception there. I I believe it would be not as bad, but it would be pretty bad, uh, based on what I know of of that campus and and others these days. Uh, UCLA, you also spoke there. What What was the situation? Well, you know, it's sad that one has to say something like this, but at least I got through my speech, <laughs> and and the protesters stayed sitting. Uh, that should be taken for granted, but you can't take it for granted anymore. Uh, when I finished my speech, there was an eruption. All hell broke out, and uh, the protesters stood up, started screaming, Black Lives Matter, they matter here, stormed the front of the classroom, the podium, and for almost 10 minutes refused to allow any kind of question and answer between me and the students, demanded control of the microphone. Uh, they didn't get that. And the students who had invited me, the, the UCLA College Republicans, uh, stood their ground. I stood my ground, and, and we eventually waited those students out. The question and answer period was pretty raucous, but at this point, that's certainly a far sight better than surrounding a building and preventing access to did, it. Did do you hear the protesters making the argument, which I know they do in other cases and contexts, that, that your point of view is, quote, tantamount to violence? Did, did they oh, go there? Of course. Oh, absolutely. That was the, um, the written propaganda in the Facebook pages before Claremont uh, and that was the claim. And there was a student editorial at, at Claremont McKenna uh, that was just abysmally written, but took that a, a view. Now, the, how, why do students think this? Is because the faculty are feeding them this excuse for shutting down speech. They don't. Students don't come upon these 
odd ideas on their own. Uh, so, you know, if there's any faculty left who are not already the main uh, emanators of this victimology, the self-pity, the delusion that to be an American college student today is to be oppressed as opposed to the most privileged human being in human history, uh, if there's any faculty that are not taking that line, and more and more do, I just hope that they have some sanity and say we've got to stop this spreading thuggery. I just want to ask about any repercussions for for these students. When we were, I was talking to uh, talking to the audience before about uh, what happened at Middlebury when Charles Murray was physically assaulted along with a, a female professor, and I, I just can't imagine any context where absent a uh, some some political rationale for this. I mean, if I walked up to a professor when I was in college and physically assaulted that professor, I would assume that they would have to that they would make me pack my bags by the end of that day. But nobody, as as far as I know, has been expelled from Middlebury. Claremont McKenna, where you went to give your speech, costs just shy of fifty thousand dollars a year in tuition. Do you think anybody was suspended? Is anyone going to be expelled for for these actions for this? Uh, these threats of, of violence or nothing? Well, the president of Claremont McKenna sent around an email the next day when he said that he was going to hold students accountable for um, for uh, violating the school policies on entrance to buildings. I, I suspect that in this case he just might because they need to stop this public relations disaster, and that would be a good way to uh, do so, but and and it is also a good way to stop this because right now students are getting away with, with uh, you know figuratively with murder as far as murdering free speech, but what what stands in the way of that is of course the whole consumer ethos of higher education where students are treated as paying customers by administrators and you know you have the. the arms race and building ever more fancy climbing walls and athletic facilities and nobody would dare impose distribution requirements with any teeth on students because we don't want them to have to feel uh, oppressed by hard hard requirements so that that ethos of trying to please the consumer is obviously in tension with the need to impose consequences for lawless behavior Heather McDonald is a Manhattan Institute senior fellow and the author of The War on Cops. Heather, please uh, keep doing what you're doing and come back and let us know if you have any more of these incidents. We'll want to hear about it. All right. Well, I've got something coming up in Ohio. We'll see what happens there. Thank let you. Let us know. Thanks, Heather. And to the American people, I am humbled by the trust placed in me today. I will never forget that to whom much is given, much will be expected. And I promise you, that I will do all my powers permit to be a faithful servant of the Constitution and laws of this great nation. There he is, Neil Gorsuch, newest Supreme Court justice. And uh, kind of borrowing him. Uh, for a moment there, it sounded like he was going to go with uh, the... Sp- isn't it from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility, right? That's a Spider-Man thing, isn't it? He, he, sort, of, he sort of paraphrased Spider-Man. Whatever, it's a great line. Comic books are awesome. I like comic books. Except for Iron Fist on Netflix, which is garbage. But other comic books I like. Uh, So Gorsuch is now the Supreme Court justice who takes over the seat vacated by the uh, untimely uh, passing away of Justice Scalia. And in fact, uh, Justice Gorsuch 
paid paid homage to Scalia's family. Play clip 13, please. To the Scalia family, I won't ever forget that the seat I inherit today is that of a very, very great man. Um, By the way, with all the campus stuff going on, I just wanted to note to you that there were uh, similar responses when I was a student, when Scalia came to speak on campus. And uh, his his daughter was a year ahead of me. She was someone I knew and liked, and uh, his she was uh, she was there. And of course, the entire political science department of Amherst College. I was a political science major. I actually ended up using my I ended up using my otherwise nonsense liberal arts degree for my job. Who knew? Uh, but the political science department boycott that Scalia speech, and I believe students were wearing black armbands, and they were also doing this whole duck. Somebody was dressed in a duck suit because Scalia had gone hunting with. Cheney, so that meant that he was in Cheney's pocket. They went duck hunting together, uh, and they were yelling quack, quack, and they were acting like total, total... But nobody threatened violence, and no one stopped him from speaking. So it's gotten worse. The problem has definitely gotten worse. But on to the happy side of things. I, I'm taking a moment here. I know you, you know, a lot of stuff you watch in media, you hear in media, a lot of videos, you know, it's all, you know, the, the, the tyranny of the Democrats, the world is the world is collapsing, and it's like anger, anger and rage fest. We also have to stop and say when something good has happened. And even the never Trumpers who are out there listening, I believe, and the never Trumpers who are conservative, would be willing to say that on this issue of judicial nominations and the balance of the Supreme Court, President Trump gets a tremendous win. This was exactly what he promised to do. He did not back down. And Mitch McConnell, Brooke, are you giving me a shout out? On the, Mitch McConnell gets a high five as well. High five for you too, Buck. He gives me a, a high five back because he knows this is this is a, an instance of real Senate discipline that paid off. And we should we should celebrate the wins, my friends, because there's going to be a lot of opposition and nastiness out there for this administration. Uh, so when something like this that's positive happens, it's just take a moment here. You'll notice I'm not going to speak for the next, you know, 30 minutes about how great Neil Gorsuch is and how important this is to the court. It is important. Uh, there are a number of cases that he'll be uh, dealing with early on in his tenure. Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia v. Pauley, Weaver v. Massachusetts, uh, and Davila v. Davis. Um, there's California Public Employees Retirement System v. ANZ Securities. Don't have time to get into all those right now. Those are all big cases that are uh, looming in the near future of the Supreme Court and Justice Gorsuch, of course, for the first time tackling them while wearing the Supreme Court, the robes of a Supreme Court justice. So this is for those of us who were not sold on the whole Trump idea from the beginning. Talking to you, Cruz, Rubio, backers, maybe even maybe even some Kasich backers out there who are listening. Do I, I wonder how many of you are Kasich backers, but there are probably some. It's okay. You're well, well, Kasich backers are welcome too. Just don't tell me that Kasich's going to win any charm competitions anytime soon. But yeah, I mean he's you're well you're welcome in the Freedom Hut, of course. Uh, but when you had your misgivings about Trump, and I know many of you still do, and of course others of you listening are like, "Buck, what are you talking about? Trump's awesome." Now, but those who have problems with him, the Supreme Court was the was the argument that I don't think anybody could in good faith refute when it came to why you should support Trump over Hillary if you're a conservative. 
this was the most compelling, most clear, and most difficult argument to get around. Uh, and he has delivered. And by the way, given that the Democrats forced the Republicans, and even forget about whether they forced them, given the Democrats were annoying and Republicans did what they're allowed to do, which is to exercise the so-called nuclear option, which, as you listened to the show last week, you know all about the filibuster, so you know the filibuster is uh, gets a lot more love in the press than it should. Um, but now, when they want to get through the next Supreme Court nominee... They can put through another total originalist and just just go for it. And that will make a, an enormous difference in the future of the court and could make an enormous difference in the future of this country. Just think about what one one more truly originalist conservative justice would have meant for Obamacare, for uh, just go down and look at all those Supreme Court cases. <laughs> Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Headline up on the Daily Mail. China deploys 150,000 troops to deal with possible North Korean refugees over fears Trump may strike Kim Jong-un following missile attack on Syria. Well, that is quite a headline from the Daily Mail, which I know is a UK uh, tabloid. But what's going on here? And we can certainly speak about North Korea more generally and the U.S. policy vis-a-vis that very troubled country. We're joined by Peter Brooks now. He's a senior fellow for national security affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Peter, thanks for making the time. Good to be with you. Uh, what? By the way, any anything to this movement of of troops? The Daily Mail is reporting on here, or is this? Uh, do you, do you even not even buy this? What do you think? Uh, I'm skeptical. Color me skeptical at this point. That's uh, I mean, Chinese army is huge, but that's a lot of uh, troops. There could be some military exercises going on though. Uh, but I am a little skeptical. Of yeah, no, I know. It's a Daily Mail, right? Like this was next to there. They got photos of, of Kim Kardashian on here, too, or whatever. So I get it. But I'm just saying it's there. It's it's there. We're just going to we're just going to have to see. I mean, China is obviously worried about instability in North Korea, large refugee flows uh, coming in. And that's one of the reasons they privately say that they're not interested in seeing any sort of uh, major regime change, uh, you know, in a, in a, in a certain sort of a quick fashion, because they are concerned. There's a lot of hungry people in North Korea. They're not allowed to cross the border into China to a large extent. And they're worried about if there was a civil war or something else, they'd have, you know, 20 million people moving north. So, so Peter, t- tell me, tell me where this, uh, where, where this is maybe too, too strident or, or, or I'm, I'm going off the rails here a little bit. Every time North okay. Korea does something bad. Oftentimes it's a missile launch. Sometimes it's a crazy assassination of somebody with, you know, anti-aircraft guns or a chemical weapon or whatever. Every time they do that, the media goes, oh, my gosh, there's this place called North Korea where terrible things happen, where people live in in prison camps and there's forced starvation. And it's, you know, uh, 1984 made real, but worse. And uh, all, all of that true. But then we get to the and, and we need to do something. And then it just peters off into nothing. I'm not clear on what what this we need to do something even is if it doesn't involve regime change. We'd like to do something. You know, we'd like to do something, but it's a very nettlesome problem. I mean, I've been following North Korea for a long time. I've actually been there. And the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, it's if you 
start a, a war with the North, uh, it, it's kicking a, a beehive, a terrible beehive. You know, Seoul, the capital of South Korea, is 25 miles from the demilitarized zone, which is not demilitarized at all. Talk about an oxymoron. I mean, it's the most militarized line of, of uh, demarcation in the world today. Uh, and North Korean artillery can reach that. And that North Korean artillery could be filled with, you know, could be conventional or it could be unconventional, including chemical weapons. And Seoul is a megalopolis of 20 million people. So this is this, this, a, a war on the Korean peninsula today, especially considering North's uh, nuclear capability, limited nuclear capability, would be, I think, much more horrific than the 1950 to 1953 Korean War, if that's possible. So then where does that leave us? They're already under tremendous sanctions. We asked the Chinese to do a little more. It seems the Chinese like their position vis-a-vis North Korea, at least when it comes to dealing with us, because they can kind of turn the spigot on and turn the spigot off, right? They can make things a little more uncomfortable for North Korea, and then they can dial it back when they want to you know, use it for their own purposes and give North Korea a little more leeway. I have yet to hear a single, you know, when we, t- I mean, we might get a chance to talk about Syria with you here in a minute, Peter. On Syria, yeah. I hear different options, and I understand the costs and benefits, and, and, but there are options. On North Korea, all I hear is, this is terrible, and at some point they're going to have a nuke that might be able to hit a U.S. city on an ICBM, but uh, we can't really do anything about it. Well, the fact of the matter is, is Syria is very different from North Korea. Oh, no, North I know, Korea but, but let's stay on, North, stay on North Korea for, for now. What, what can we do, yeah, yeah. or what can be done? Well, it, the fact of the matter is, like I said, you know, a full-scale war is a very uh, interesting Right, okay, so story. scale me back from full-scale war. What else is there? Okay, well, sure, you can do, there's lots of, there's some things you can do. You're right, North Korea is highly sanctioned, but if you really want to squeeze them, you go after banking. This is what the Bush administration did to get them to come to the six-party talks to talk about their nuclear program. Now, of course, that was under a different leader. That's the father of the current leader. Uh, but, you know, they do don't do a lot of international trade. A lot of their trade is actually in counterfeit goods uh, and missiles. Uh, so but because they need to they need to not only take care of the elite, they need to take care of the military, the intelligence services. So they need to do some sort of international transactions. They sell some coal to China, but they're not. A, you know, the economy is, is like, uh, you know, one of the worst in the world. The country is impoverished. So what you got to do is you have to go against against, uh, you know, international banking, and that'll squeeze them. This is what the Bush administration did, was went after, went after a bank called Banco Delta in Macau. And that's how they were dealing. So there are some, there are some options there. Condemnation isn't going to change anything. But it's such a difficult problem, such a dangerous problem, that we want to do something about it, but it's very difficult to do anything. Well, what Chinese are some of the first steps? If, if we could get much. Kim Jong-un to play ball, Peter, what would be some of the first steps that he could conceivably take that would be acts of good faith that would be credible and realistic? Well, they could come to the negotiating table. I mean, the most prominent American to have met, uh, you know, quote-unquote prominent American to have met with the, Nor- the new North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, is Dennis Rodman, the basketball player. The Chinese, my understanding is that President Xi of China hasn't even met with uh, Kim Jong-un. He doesn't leave the country. The Chinese don't have control over him. You know, the first thing they could do is, you know, some sort of negotiations, come to the table to talk about things. I have a very hard time, Buck, believing that North Korea is going to give up its nuclear weapons. I mean, why would they? They're a third world country with nuclear weapons. The only reason people really pay attention to them, they get a seat at the at the big person's table is because they have nuclear weapons. Why would they give them up? 
This is, I mean, we like to think that there's a possibility of that. I just think it's very, very remote. And there, but, and there are no signs that we know of that internally the regime is in any way liberalizing, uh, rationalize, or, you know, engaging in more, more rational, reasonable behavior. Nope. Um, and, and in fact, I've seen some people say that Kim Jong-un is worse than Kim Jong-il. Well, you look at some of the political purges. I mean, a lot of people thought it would be that way because Kim Jong-un was educated in Switzerland. Uh, and they thought, you know, maybe educated in the West, he'd be different. You know, the possibility when his father goes, there'd be some sort of liberalization, reunification of the Korean Peninsula. You know, two people, uh, one people that have been divided since that terrible war. Uh, and it didn't happen. It just did not happen. He did not liberalize. In fact, the stories of the purges are pretty incredible. I, I, you know, you've probably seen them, people being assassinated with anti-aircraft guns. I don't know if these are true or not. But the fact of the matter is, is that he believe it seems that he has really consolidated power. And he's also totally committed to his ballistic missile programs and his nuclear program. And I wouldn't be surprised. April 15th is like Founders Day in North Korea. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a possibility of a nuclear test uh, around that time, which would be their sixth nuclear test since 2006. And they're getting better at this. Every t- even if, when a missile fails, they're learning something. And you said uh, you, you've been there. Just for for everyone listening, Peter, yeah. isn't uh, Kim Jong Un's uh, granddad Kim Il Sung? Uh, he right. wasn't he like a, supposedly born on a mountain with unicorns everywhere? Yeah. So, I mean, and this is like official state <laughs> propaganda, right? Well, that's not quite saying, but there is a cult of personality. Uh, you know, this uh, Kim Jong Un is what I call the newest uh, Kim of the uh, King of the Kingdom, because he is the third generation leader of North Korea. Uh, grandfather Kim Il-sung, father Kim Jong-il, and then uh, Kim Jong-un. And um, he is, uh, he is he's in, in what I can tell, in firm control. Uh, but that could change. I mean, you know, it's, it's a hermetically sealed place. I haven't been to North Korea in 20 years, so it's, it's, it's different. I was there under a different, a different leader. But there's yeah, but don't they believe some crazy stuff? Like, is, isn't it technically a, a necrocracy because the, the dear leader is still alive? I mean, there's, there's some really funky stuff that's i know there's juche which is a self-reliance philosophy but in terms of the the lineage the dynasty isn't there some crazy lore or am i just reading too much internet stuff well (laughs) it's it's an interesting thing and people if they're if they're you know besides the terrible problems i mean you know this is a total police state highly repressive um you know every home has a picture of the uh, great leader and the dear leader that's the that grandfather and father I mean, any sort of, uh, you know, there's stories out there where somebody was caught by accident sitting on a newspaper, which had one of the Kim Jong-il's picture in it, and they were sent off to a gulag. Uh, they do have political prison camps. People are hungry. When I was there in the late 1990s, people were eating grass and twigs. And North Korea, the fact, Buck, is that North Korea probably could feed itself about 75%. Um, the South has always been the breadbasket on the Korean Peninsula. The North was more industrial. And um, it, it could do better. But because of its collectivist, communist economic policies, it's hungry. And the people are hungry. Uh, and it's, unfortunately, the stories are that there's a, a whole generation of young kids who have been malnourished. I mean, this is a real human tragedy beyond beyond the security threat that we're that we're dealing with in North Korea. All right, let's move on to Syria here for a second. The administra- everyone's asking whether the administration has had a major shift in policy. If the, if the overall approach to Syria, uh, Syria has changed, here we have Secretary of State Tillerson saying that they're not seeking regime change. Uh- Any time you go in and have a violent change uh, at the top, 
it is very difficult to create the conditions for stability a longer term. So it sounds like from what you're saying right now, there is no real change in the United States military stance towards Syria. That's correct, George. This, that this strike was related solely to the most recent horrific use of chemical weapons against m women, children, and as the president said, even small babies. So the strike was uh, a message to Bashar al-Assad that your multiple violations of your agreements at the UN, your agreements under the chemical weapons uh, charter back in 2013, that those would not go without a response in the future. And we are asking Russia to fulfill okay, its okay, commitment. And now, and then he, but then he said this, the first priority is to defeat ISIS, and then... I think, John, it's important that uh, we keep our priorities straight, and we believe that the first priority is the defeat of ISIS, that by defeating ISIS and removing their caliphate from their control, we have now eliminated at least or minimized a particular threat, not just to the United States, but to the whole stability in the region. And once the ISIS uh, threat has been reduced or eliminated, I think we can turn our attention directly to stabilizing the situation in Syria. We're hopeful that we can prevent a continuation of the civil war and that we can bring the parties to the table to begin the process of political discussions. What do you think about all that, Peter? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't laugh. There's a lot there. I mean, it kind of shows the, the fact of how complex Syria is. Uh, you know, this is it's a snake pit. Uh, you know, you got you have the Russians involved, you have Iran involved, Hezbollah, the regime itself, the Turks are in Syria, the Kurds are in Syria. You got ISIS, you got Al Qaeda and its spinoff groups. Uh, the United States. I mean, you have a you know Shia foreign fighters from around the world uh, there fighting to support the regime. I mean, it's it's a snake pit. It's a difficult, uh, very difficult problem. So uh, the secretary and you know trying in. in uh, I, I would say, you know, TV fashion is trying to get out a lot of stuff in a short period of time. All right. Uh, what do you think the uh, policy should be? Well, I certainly would like to see Bashar al-Assad go. I've, I've never walked away from that. The question is what means and what commitment on the part of the United States do you get? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not at this point uh, advocating that we put more forces on the ground than we have right now to deal with ISIS. But like with the Obama administration, we need a comprehensive policy. So when ISIS collapses, and I think it will as a caliphate and probably turn into an insurgency, uh, you know, what fills that space? Uh, is it the regime? Which, you know, gosh, think about this regime now uh, among bad actors. It's right up there using chemical weapons against its own people. Uh, you know, that's it's unbelievable. It's unconscionable. But then what happens? What fills that space? Al-Qaeda? Uh, you know, ISIS insurgency, the regime. I mean, there aren't a lot of good choices over there. I think the Obama administration could have done a lot more earlier on about this, uh, but didn't. Uh, I certainly would like to see Bashar al-Assad, uh, you know, go uh, in whatever fashion, whatever fashion that is. The question is, how do you how do you achieve that? Peter Brooks is senior fellow for national security affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Peter, great to have you. Come back soon. Thanks for having me. Team hitting a break here. Oh, before we go, though, we're going to be talking about the United uh, fiasco. We'll play you that audio as well. We'll talk about that incident. But I invited people earlier today on Facebook, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, to share their airline horror stories. And if you want to share some on air of your worst, I mean, I mean, the worst of the worst you've had to deal with with the airline, uh, by all means, back in a few minutes. 
All right, just to follow up on uh, my discussion there with uh, with Peter about North Korea. Um, so the Guardian, British newspaper, real newspaper, not like a tabloid nonsense newspaper. It's leftist, but it's real. Uh, reported that North Korea's official. Because remember, I, I said unicorns and stuff. I, I wasn't just making that up, guys. North Korea might be making it up, of course, but I'm not. Uh, North Korea's official state news agency uh, said that they found a that archaeologists in Pyongyang discovered a unicorn's lair, um, and that they have confirmed the lair of one of the unicorns ridden by the ancient Korean king Tong Myong. Uh, who ruled parts of China and the Korean Peninsula from the 3rd century B.C. Sorry, his uh, his kingdom did. He did, he wasn't alive for all this time. 3rd century B.C. to 7th century A.D. So the North, North Korean official news agency says that they found a unicorn lair, okay? So I'm not I'm not making—I mean, obviously it's crazy, but— And then about the, ma- the magic uh, the special mountain, or whatever it is, uh, Baikdu Mountain— the legend around Kim Jong Il, I thought it was Kim Il Sung, his father, but it's actually Kim Jong Il, is that in uh, 1942 he was born on the uh, mystical Baikdu Mountain, and uh, there was a double rainbow and a glowing new star appeared in the sky. So he got a double double rainbow, everybody. Double double rainbow. Um, so that's a thing. And then what else do we have here? Uh, Where's oh yeah, there's also official records. This is from CBS News. Show that Kim Il Sung wrote 1,500 books in three years and six full operas, according to his official biography. And all of his operas are quote better than any in the history of music. Uh, and then in 1994, Pyongyang media reported that Kim shot a 38 under par on North Korea's only golf course with 11 holes in one. Uh, this is—I mean, these are this is all real stuff that's reported. Everybody, Ele- eleven holes in one. I think there was a hole in one of the Masters yesterday, right? Wasn't that a thing that happened? Somebody, uh, you guys, you know, no golf in the Freedom Hunt. No, nobody knows anything. About, wow, just nothing. You guys got nothing for me on the golf, really? I don't watch golf. I don't play golf and I watch golf, but you know, I hear it's great. Uh, okay, so anyway, there's the North Korea stuff that I wanted to share with you. United Airlines. This one, this one gets me. Speaking of totalitarian dictatorship. United Airlines. Uh, this audio, this is the, one of the biggest news stories today. You got to see the video if you haven't already. Here is the audio of it. Play clip 16, please. Okay. Okay. So, so let's let's get into this a little bit. So, what happened here? You had a flight. I think this was a Chicago O'Hare heading for Kentucky, and you had a flight that was oversold, which is a process that we'll talk about a little bit on the other side. And the overselling meant that there were four United crew members who did not have seats, and so they went through the process that I'm sure many of you are familiar with which is when the airline says, you know, can we please offer you a $150 gift certificate for your next flight and also a th- a $15 meal voucher for, you know, whatever, right? That, that This is what goes, and then maybe someone stands up and goes, okay, I'll take it. 
Nobody was taking it. And believe it or not, the airline, in this case United, which I think is the largest American carrier, maybe, I think it's the biggest, maybe it's, I think it's bigger than American Airlines. Anyway, one of the biggest for sure. Uh, United thought that a better idea than to up the offer to get somebody to, to give up their seat, they went up to like 700 or 800 all in dollars. Um, the better option was to call aviation police and have a paying passenger literally grabbed and dragged down the aisle, bloodied in the process against his will, of course, because that's how airlines roll these days. We've got more. Stay with me. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. So whenever there's an opportunity for all of us to vent our collective aggravation and fury at the airline airlines in this country, uh, I think it's it is a necessary public catharsis. We all love this, man. I just... I want to pile on to, I, I sit here and think of the frustrations I've been put through with airlines, the whole process too. You got to show up so early. And even then you don't know if you'll get through security. And I know that's the TSA, but the whole thing. And, and then you go to a gate and then they change the gate and then there's a delay in the flight. And then they say they've overbooked the flight. And then it's just all of this nonsense. And you know, something is wrong here because for one, Flying on an American airline carrier these days is like stepping into a time warp and all of a sudden you find yourself in the Soviet Union of the 1960s. They tell you how to sit. They tell you what you can eat. They tell you when you can read. They tell I mean, everything, right? I mean, they tell you when you can go to the bathroom. It, you are completely at their whim on the whole thing. They will just tell you whatever they want, and it, you know, the moment that you're like, uh, can I just uh, go to the bathroom? Excuse me, sir, Um, you need to sit down. Uh, you know, FAA, FAA regulations. It's like, oh, gosh. And I know some of this, some of the, wait, we're not, it's not, uh, it's flight attendant now, not not stewardess, right? Yes, yeah, sorry, yeah, 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 <laughs> of course. Flight attendants, flight attendants. Some of the flight attendants listening are like, well, those are the FAA regulations. And I've I've met many lovely flight attendants. I'm not I'm not trying to be rough on on flight attendants at all. Uh, but airlines are terrible. And every time I call and and have had this, I'm sure you've had this experience too. If you call the airline and you're like, look, uh, I, you guys have open flight, you guys have open seats on a flight that's like an hour later or an hour earlier. You know, can you move me? And and maybe for some reason they'll be okay with it. But usually they go, well, you know, that's going to be $150 plus a $300 fare change. But it's like, but that seat, you got open seats. So I'm a paying customer. And yeah, that that is what the market will bear. But, you know, theoretically, if you were, the, if you were a restaurant, you could tell somebody, well, we changed the price of the food from when you ordered it to when it came out of the kitchen. So now your now your souffle is not is not seven dollars. It's it's fifty dollars. You could do that. I mean, that's within your if it's especially if the prices aren't written down. Right. You could say, oh, I'm sorry. I thought that bottle of wine was thirty dollars, but it's really three hundred dollars. Uh, but that would be bad business practice. The problem for the airlines or I'm sorry, the problem with airlines for all of us is that there are so few options. And the, you, you know, there's a problem here because unlike almost every other aspect of our lives, 
airlines have gotten, it's not that they don't get a lot better. They have gotten worse. Seats have gotten smaller and less comfortable. And now you have checked baggage fees. And now you are getting worse service in greater uh, discomfort than you did decades ago. So somehow, you know, my iPhone can now do the work of like the entirety of the North Atlantic Treaty Alliance's uh, computer network from, you know, the 1960s or something. But uh, they can't figure this out. They, they can't make airline travel any better for us. And of course, the answer, they can, but there are reasons why it does not happen. It should be noted that when we're talking about overselling of seats... Oh, wait, but I'm sorry. Before I get overselling of seats, I, I'm just venting here because I, I, I hate the stupid airlines so much. They, they make me so angry. The The seat change fee is just is just grotesque profiteering. They don't have to do that. They do it because you have no choice, right? And, and there's no, what, what, what are you going to do about that? And look, I'm somebody, I live here in New York City. We grew up with taxis are, are ubiquitous here. But now that there's Uber and then there's Lyft and these other services too, you know, I mean, it, it does, shouldn't have to be the case that you get in the back of a taxi and uh, it it smells like somebody lost their lunch on the floorboards and you reach into the handle and there's like a, a wet... What is it with people st- stashing the wet tissue in the door handle of the car? That's so wrong. That's so messed up. I'm sure... Don't tell me you've never had that happen. You, you're getting out in or out of a, of, a, of a taxi or some sort of a convey, a public conveyance. And someone has stashed a soggy tissue there. They obviously blew their nose in or It's so gross. Who does that, man? Just just leave it on the floor. Don't stash it in the the door handle. I guess people think it's the ashtray or something, but it's the door handle. Anyway, um, I digress. Clearly, I have some issues when it comes to this. But on on plane or with with airlines and flights, they over they have the change fee thing, which is the for me that's the you know. And they go, oh, we can't, especially, and you buy through Expedia or something, and oh, we could never do that. Like, we can't help you. It's a third-party service. Lies. They could help you. Lies. They just lie to you. Because what are you going to do? If we were talking about a restaurant where they were changing the price of the food from when you order to when it comes out of the kitchen, you wouldn't go back to that restaurant, right? You know, we've gone from 10 major carriers in this country um, in 2000 to four. So you are, we are now in an almost monopoly situation, and that's why the Soviet comparison feels so apt. And there's a tremendous amount of regulation that goes into all of this, and you know there, there are ways that this could be made better. But on, on to the overselling of the seats, because that's what led to this fiasco today for United. And, and everybody likes it when United just takes it, right in the, takes it right in the teeth, because United is among the worst offenders here. I have dealt with stuff with the United. You know, I, I love it when uh, when a flight is delayed and you've got on the same carrier, you got a connecting flight. So you're on United, you know, flight 722, and you're trying to get to United flight 723. United 722, because, you know, they've got a, an attendant that's late to the gateway or whatever, jetway, whatever it's called. Uh, you know, you, you that flight's delayed an hour. So then you miss your connecting flight, and then you can't get on another flight, and that's just like, all, you know, stinks for you. They don't care. They don't care at all. And then they, they, they subject you to the uh, uh, completely enraging experience of standing in line because of their mistake. Now you get to stand in line and deal with their customer service person who just sits there and somehow all you hear is all this typing. There's just typing and typing and typing that goes on all the time. They're constantly typing and you think to yourself, um, what, what exactly 
are they doing over there? What, what, and, and I know they've done sketches and things like that where you've seen this. Um, but it's maddening. It is maddening what happens here on overselling, which led to this incident today. Uh, what they do is if there are 100 seats on the plane, they sell 105 or something. They've got formulas. They're trying to work all this out. And they sell more seats than they have. Well, well this should, you would think, result in some problems, right? That, that, that's a pretty straightforward, you know, th- this is an issue. Well, they assume, based on their formulas, that some people won't show up for a flight that for a ticket that they've bought. So then they get to get the full profits of selling 105 seats, but they really only have to provide for 100 seats, let's say, right? Or whatever the case may be. My friend Deshaun Davis over the, out at the Federalist has a very good breakdown of the actual math on this. And then they try to induce people to get off the plane or, or, to, or to give up their ticket usually before they've boarded the plane so that they can cover themselves even though they've oversold a flight. And they do this They do this now as a matter of policy. And they say they have to for profits. And Washington Post, which I know is, speaking of Soviet and, and quasi-communist, um, but the Washington Post is an example of a place where, or the Washington Post takes the example of different airlines and says that they're making, in fact, record profits. They're near record levels. Um, let me see what they have here. The North American Air- North American Airlines raked in over $20 billion in profits for each of the past two years. And United made $2.3 billion in profit last year. Now, I know you're probably thinking, well, Buck, this is capitalism at work. It is. But there also are a lot of regulations. There's a lot of government bureaucracy and red tape around this stuff. And there's also a part of us that just revolts at the notion that you could be a paying customer, that you could be on a flight that you're supposed to be on uh, with a ticket that you you bought, and you're told, sorry, you're not actually getting on this flight because we need it for somebody else. You know, this isn't like you're in a nightclub and you think you've got that table you paid all that money for with the really overpriced bottle of cheap champagne they sold you, and now you're being told, sorry, Leo, like Leo DiCaprio is here with his entourage, we're going to have to move you. You know, you're in a nightclub, that's going to happen to you sometimes. So I'm told. So I'm told. You know, th- this is a thing that can happen to the best of us. You're on an airline You're on an airline, and you're taking your seat. You think that you've got that seat and that you're going to be able to get to your next destination. But turns out that little contract that you sign when you buy the ticket, which none of us read or even know about, by the way, the carriage contract, which if you look into it, you'd be like, what? Like, they can, they can send me to Siberia if I speak up again? You know, I mean, they, they can do... They can't do that, but they can do a lot of really annoying stuff to you. Um, and they can more or less kidnap you on the tarmac, right? You're, you're, think about this. What do you call it when you are, when, when a private entity has you in its custody and you have no right to leave and they can keep you for as long as they want, basically? That sounds like kidnapping to me, but airlines do it and it's a tarmac delay. You know, you want to get off the plane? Too bad. You're stuck. You sit there for hours and hours? Too bad. Maybe they'll give you a little voucher for some for some potato chips and a and a soda. I mean that that's what they think will make up for it. Uh, we, this just has to get better. I mean they, they dragged this guy off. It was it was rough. I mean the way they treated this this individual, and of course now because there's video and there's a lot of outrage about it. And United's going to have some campaign. Oh wait, we got the by the way the police statement here. Uh, producer Amy sent this to me from the Chicago Police Department. This is their official statement. At approximately 6 p.m., 
A 69-year-old Asian man, uh, 69-year-old male Asian airline passenger became irate after he was asked to disembark from a flight that was oversold. The passenger in question began yelling to voice his displeasure, at which point aviation police were summoned. Aviation officers arrived on scene and attempted to carry the individual off the flight when he fell. His head subsequently struck an armrest, causing injuries to his face. The man was taken to Lutheran General Hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Ongoing investigation. That's CPD, Chicago Police Department. Officer communications. Okay. So it is confirmed that that is, that is what happened. So yeah, United now takes the position. He said he had, this guy claimed to be a doctor and said he had patients he had to see in the morning. United now takes the position that even if the flight's leaving and you're on the flight, they can just take you off the flight. And if you don't want to get off the flight, instead of sending somebody maybe from customer relations, because what they did is they, they said, okay, we'll offer this amount of money. And then if you don't take it, we're just going to pick four names at random. And that's what this guy was one of the four names at random. And then we're going to pull you off the flight. You know, I'd be, I'd be pretty agitated about this too. I got to find out what words I'm like allowed to say on Reddit because there are some other words that I'd use here. But I would, I'd be pretty agitated as well uh, when it comes to dealing with the airline over this issue. But I hope that this gets the wheels going for, uh, I, I guess, deregulation or just increased competition. We used to have 10 airlines. Now we have four. Uh, and it's clearly not enough. They operate like monopolies. They don't care what customers think, and you don't really have much in the way of options, and yet people need to fly. So we got to get a better system. You know, I don't know, flying cars or something. That'd be fun. There's got to be There's got to be a technological advancement beyond this because I, I dread, I'll be honest, I dread flying. Not because I'm scared of flying as, a, as an activity, I hate dealing with airlines. I hate going to the airport, the whole thing. It just ruins my day. Nobody cares. There's no effort to make it more pleasant. And if you fly through LaGuardia, you're like, wow, I'm, I'm in some really uh, impoverished and dysfunctional country. Oh, wait, I'm in New York City. But I digress. Um, 844-900-BUCK. Oh, by the way, if you're listening, please do download the podcast of the show. And you can subscribe on iTunes. Go to Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. Click subscribe. It'll pop up every day. You can listen to the whole show. You can share it with friends. And uh, even if you're a live listener, uh, please do check out the podcast. It adds a, a fun functionality to your Freedom Hut forays. Apologies for the excessive alliteration. We'll be back in a few minutes. Sorry, I, I didn't know that you know, every single line is lit up here to talk about air aviation stories and we have not that much time left let me get to as many calls we literally have every line lit up in the couple of minutes that i went on air here uh we have uh michael in kentucky uh great to have you michael hello how you doing good hey just wanted to say i used to fly for a living full time and i'm over a two million miler with american and you're right nothing matters anymore um i'll miss platinum by four segments last year and, uh, you know, so now I'll go back to a busted gold, and I still have to pay extra for extra seats, and they will yank you off, and they normally look at the least amount of money they make or the least tiered person on the plane, and they'll yank them first for their crew members. Really? I didn't know this was a thing that happened on the regular. That's crazy to me. Oh, yeah, it's definitely regular because, you know, they, they got crew members got to get to another plane to fly it because they, they do things so tight nowadays. Um, we got grounded in uh, Nashville the other day. 
and only had the weekend off, so they they blew and they missed my flight out of Dallas. So I only got uh, you know a day at home by the time I got home on Saturday. Oh man, it all right. Matter. Well, why why is it getting worse? Why can't it get better? No, you're absolutely right because now you know, we got a monopoly of four, and they really don't care if you look at their at their capacities. They they restricted their flights, cut them way back, and they're filling the planes up more now. And uh, and you're right. I don't see how they can overbook and charge everybody because the people that book are going to pay one way or another, and whether they fly or not. And that's the thing that aggravates me tremendously. Like you said, you want to go early. There's a seat available. Why can't they put you on there? I mean, and that leaves your seat open for a later flight. Maybe they get somebody. Yeah, it's they're just ex- it's just exploiting people. And with, like I said, with four carriers, you got no choice. And plus, with all the other regulations around it, it's it's unfair. It's not it's not a free market thing. It's it's an unlevel playing field. But Michael in Kentucky, Shield Time, and thank you for calling in, Richard in North Carolina, WPTI. What's up, Richard? Oh, man. Hey, what's up? How are you? I'm good, brother. Thanks for calling in. Yes, sir. So you understand our whole government is based on this same principle, right? What principle? <laughs> what, what are, on, on airlines Fractional being terrible? Banking, man. Fractional reserve banking. You print way more claim tickets to what property is available. Okay. See what I'm saying? Uh, I, I think I see what you're saying, yeah. Used to be we were on the gold standard. Yeah, right? we, there, we don't have enough money in the bank to cover all of the bank's obligations. Yeah, that is true. Right. Same concept, man. It's all fraudulent. So people get outraged about this stuff, but they have no clue about that the bank's raking them. I mean, the government can print as many tickets to property that doesn't exist and drive prices up just like the airlines are doing. It's the model. Hmm. Well, and, and that is an ever. And thank you for sharing the theory, Richard. I appreciate it. Shields high. Thank you for for calling in, uh, Jim in Virginia. You're on the Buck Sexton show. Welcome. Hey, Mister Buck. How you doing tonight? Good, sir. How are you? Doing good. I just had a quick comment. You were talking about flying cars. Uh, that is the technology being quickly advanced. Several companies are working on it. They're going to be GPS guided. You be able to land them in your own yard. Uh, this is coming, and, you know, they've already got self-driving uh, tractor-trailers. That's coming. Uh, no drivers in them, GPS. But these, these small these small planes are, you know, going to have a range between three and 500 miles. It's coming. That sounds great to me, man. Let's hope let's hope that happens soon. Jim in Virginia Shields High, thank you for calling in. And thank you, everybody, for, for lighting up all the lines. I know we're at the very end of the show. I did, of course, I asked for airline stories, and air, everyone's like, airlines! <laughs> it's like I called for a stampede, and all the phone lines lit up. So I appreciate that. But uh, if you got more thoughts on this tomorrow, we'll take them. How about that? Even though we'll be on to some news of the day. But uh, if you got airline thoughts or airline horror stories, you can share them tomorrow. So those of you who were, were unable to get through tonight, Apologies, but thank you for calling. And, and like every day every day this week, I'll be here, my friends, like every week. Uh, please do download the show. Uh, tell a friend or two about it. Uh, tell them this guy named Buck Saxon does a radio show they should check out. And check out also the Facebook page, facebook.com slash facebook.com slash Buck Saxon. Until tomorrow night, my friends, stay away from the airlines and shields high. <laughs>